0: It is a great privilege for for me to be here, Uh, and uh, I don't think um, Paul mentioned this, but um, for me personally, um, uh, lovely to be back here in Christchurch in in Fullwood. I had the privilege of being here for two years as what was then called a lay assistant. Um, This makes me feel quite old now. It was exactly 20 years ago um, that I was here and received a great deal of care and love and teaching from all sorts of people when I was here. And if you are one of those people and I forget your face, please do forgive me. Now, I think you've got handouts for each of my four talks uh, uh, in your pack. And um, different people like to do different things with the handouts. Some like to be kind of glued to them and making notes as you go. Others prefer just to kind of soak it in. And then the handout is something to remind you when you get home. Obviously, that's entirely up to you as to to how you you use that. Uh, This first talk is called God, Christ and the Bible. Now, there are some words, particular words, that people from Bible teaching churches often think of first when they think of the Bible. Uh, Two big ones would be inspired and authority. Now, Deliberately, in this first talk, I'm not going to use either of those words. We're going to come to inspiration, I think, later today, uh, authority a little bit tomorrow. But what I'm really doing in this first talk is to want to look through the Bible and to put some of the Bible's own content in place for what will then emerge, if you like, as the tip of the iceberg when we come to use those words like inspiration and the authority of the Bible, those words which are perhaps a a bit more familiar to us. Uh, And what you might kind of guess as we go along here is that I've sometimes felt, I'm not alone in this, that uh, when talking about the Bible, we've jumped a little bit too quickly, if you like, to throw down the inspiration or authority card, that particular word, true teachings, absolutely. But sometimes it's that word that comes out so early on in our thinking about the Bible that we forget all the profound Bible content of which that word is just a particular summary. So if you're thinking, why all this kind of, as it were, messing around with the details of the Bible, where's where's the authority, where's the inspiration stuff? Well, it's coming, but this first talk is very much building to it. Now, you will have a million and one different questions in your mind when we come to this topic of, when we say the Bible is the word of God, what are we saying? Let me kind of express it in, in this slightly silly way. Um, I once saw a, sort of a pencil-drawn cartoon which pictured um, a guy looking incredibly miserable sitting in a very bare room with a stupidly oversized book on his lap. And you can see the title of the book on the spine It says, brief notes on Leviticus. You know, and the book is this thick. And the guy looks completely miserable as he's studying this book. And underneath the caption said, Chris the Calvinist just lived for pleasure. (laughs) Or, if you want to broaden out the rudeness of it, Ernie the Evangelical just lived for pleasure. Now, that cartoon, presumably... Um, written by an evangelical with a sense of humor, or a non-evangelical who wanted to be rude about people like me, gets at something. Uh, We follow a living saviour. We are indwelt by the very life, the presence of the God the Holy Spirit himself. Is it not that, some people think, that when we revolve our Christian lives so much around a book around words on a page which don't move and are just black and white, when we make our Christian lives revolve so much around this, have we not somehow deadened the life of Christ, the power of the Spirit in us? Now, if you've been taught the Bible well, as I know many of you, all of you, will have been, you'll immediately have questions coming to your minds to answer that Objection. But it's drilling down deep, if you like, into that objection and seeing how actually, no, no, if we're talking about the life of Christ in us, the power of the Spirit in us, the living God whom we meet and in whom we live and move and have our being, then it must be around these black and white words that don't move around this book that our life revolves. That's what I'm about in these talks. Um, Finally, if you are following the handout, I finally get to the handout. Uh, We always want to take, don't we, um, objections to what we believe really seriously. Some objections to what we believe are just silly and nitpicky, but some are thoughtful. And we always want to take our objectors at their best and not just set up straw men. Um, And I put here an objection which is, um, I think, among the best objections here is some but put in a popular way this is an old testament scholar called john barton who wrote it is not primarily the bible that is the word of god but jesus christ i do not think one could find a single christian who would dissent from this proposition for to do so would plainly be to commit what is sometimes called bibliolatry that is the elevation of the bible above christ himself Christians are not those who believe in the Bible, but those who believe in Christ. Now again, intelligent people like you probably don't need to take more than a second look at that to see that he presents as a false dichotomy. We want to say, no, I really do believe in Christ, and I also believe in the Bible. Just how biblically and theologically we fit those two together is what we're about in a way that could leave no one under the misapprehension that we worship this more than we worship him, to whom all worship is due. So I put there a definition. One I'm going to be defending here, what faithful Christians have always been about, is what I'm going to call, for want of a better word, the classical doctrine of Scripture. That's the classical statement of what the Bible is that the Bible is to be equated directly with the word of God. So that for those of us who are Anglicans, we're not in any way crossing our fingers behind our back or doing a bit of fancy reinterpretation when at the end of the Bible reading in our services, the reader says, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let me put the the objection, though, back to the objection to this, put it in a slightly more theological way. Um, Karl Barth, one of the outstanding figures of theology of the 20th century, in many ways wanted to uphold the authority of the Bible, but would not stand for anyone saying, this is the word of the Lord. I won't go into every detail of Karl Barth's understanding of the Bible, you'll be glad to know, mainly because I'm not sure I understand it terribly well myself. However, at the heart of what Barth fears is this, He fears that if we say, this is the word of the Lord, we have effectively created a second incarnation. We've said, well, we know that in Jesus, there's a union of the divine and the human in the one person. And we've, if you like, created a holy inscripturation that here is a union of the divine, God's word, and the human The words of Matthew and Paul and so on. And we've created a second object of worship in the world. And even if we don't mean it to, it will always compete with Jesus for our love and our affection and our worship. At his best, that's Bart's great fear. I've kind of got a big trowel out and laid, you know, really laid the objections on thick, but we need to take them seriously. Because these are not frivolous objections. They get to the very heart of who God is and who it is that we are meant to worship. Uh, And what I'm going to do for the next 30 minutes or so is, of course, sketchily, uh, but walk us through the Bible and put together what you might call a, a biblical theology of God, Christ, and words and how those things fit together within the Bible. Uh, And I'm sort of going to add the elements bit by bit. So now we're now now on heading two on the handout. Uh, What I want to do is to start with God's action and his words. The obvious place is, of course, to start with Genesis chapter one. What do you get right through Genesis chapter one is, And God said, let there be, and it was so. This is not news to you, I know. When God says it, it happens. What's not going on in Genesis 1, what's not going on is God says, I've got a good idea, I'm going to make some light. Uh, And then he goes off and does it. No, for God to say let there be is the same thing as for him to create it. His word is of such a unique nature that when he says let there be, it is so. We'll be able to look at all these examples, but you can look at some uh, a little bit later. Have a look at that third one. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. This is one of the, the purple passages in the Old Testament on this topic. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verse 10. the word of god that god sends to do the work of god god almost speaks of his word here in the same categories as himself he is at work he sends his word to be at work when you come to the new testament you find a similar thing and just to think of this um, a little doctrinally think of the what's called the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is that God chooses to declare us to have a right standing in his sight the moment we come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There hasn't been an iota of moral change within us. All we have done is flung ourselves on ourselves on a saviour. But at that moment, the Lord makes a declaration. I declare you to have a right standing in my sight. So for God to justify us is something he performs by speaking. It's a declaration. Uh, Similarly, there's what theologians have called the effectual calling. Just uh, have a look with me at Romans 8, verse 30. Romans eight, thirty. Those he predestined, he also called; those he called, he also justified; those he justified, he also glorified. Of course, there is a, a general call of the gospel to the whole of humanity, but uh, what's in view quite clearly here in Romans eight is what theologians call this effectual call, which is when God calls, by that call he is at work in our hearts, drawing us to himself. And every Christian knows that as they look back. We may have had a sense of that conversion of, um, uh, I found God, and that's how it feels, as he very mercifully lets us feel that. But of course as we look back we know, no, 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 it was him all the time by the power of his spirit drawing me. His effectual call, when he calls us, uh, that call is at work in our hearts so that we, simply so that we respond. So uh, the point here is simply this. A great deal of God's action in the Bible is described simply as him using words, him speaking. His action and his speech are often two sides of the same coin. But now let's move on, let's add another element, point B, God himself and his words. Uh, And I think a helpful way in here is to think of the great covenant promise uh, through the Old Testament. Now, of course, the heart of the covenant promise uh, is expressed in these words. I will be your God and you will be my people. That one reference there i put from Genesis 17 goes like this. I will establish my covenant as a covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And that is how God comes... Think of how God comes to Abraham. Here's this guy Abraham just knocking around, living his life. God comes to him... And says to him, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, and go, go from this land, go to the land that I will show you. Think about that in these terms: when when God comes to Abraham like that, by speaking those words to him, God is coming to Abraham to be in a covenant relationship with him. It doesn't seem to be something that Abraham had asked for or particularly sought. God simply comes to him. Abraham, Abraham doesn't receive a, a memo sent down by God from heaven to respond to. No, no, in those words that God speaks to him in Genesis 12, God comes to be in a covenant relationship with Abraham. It is in those words that God comes to relate to him. Now I've sort of summarized that there in the next bullet point in this way. God's actions, including what I'm going to call his verbal actions, that's the things he does by speaking, are a kind of extension of him. When God spoke to Abraham, Abraham was doing more than receiving a message from God. He was encountering God, who was saying to him, Who am I? The great God who comes to you? I am the God who makes this promise to you. In my promise to you, you will know me and be living your life in relationship with me. Now, of course, God could have chosen to relate to us in any way that he chose. But he chose to relate in a very, very specific way, in a covenant. And a covenant is a kind of a promise. And it's a kind of a complicated thing. Because it involves God telling us who He is. It involves us telling Him who we are. It involves us telling, Him telling us what our relationship with Him must be like. What He will do if we are faithful to Him. The judgments He will bring on us if we are unfaithful to Him. That's a complicated kind of a thing. You can't mime that. Mime artistry, bay me a wonderful profession in its own right, but you can't mime a covenant. Nor in the end can you quite paint a covenant. I'm no artist. Um, My eight-year-old draws better than I do. Cat and a dog, it looks the same thing if I draw it. Art is a wonderful gift, but you can't quite paint a promise or a covenant. A A covenant is a particular kind of relationship... And you can only create it by speaking it. Uh, I I saw a quote recently. I can't. I'm I'm afraid I can't quite remember where it came from. But it was someone, uh, as it were, taking pity on evangelicals so so obsessed about scripture. Something along the lines of, "Oh, those poor wordy evangelicals." Well. Words don't get in the way of our relationship with God. The fact is, there is no relationship with the real God without the words that he comes speaking to us. God could have chosen to relate to us by giving us a a feeling in our hearts. Some theologians have thought that he does. Of course, there is a wonderful experience of walking with Christ in the power of the Spirit. But God does not... Initiate and continue our relationship with him by means merely of an experience that you can make of what he will. He does it by speaking. Okay, well, someone may say, well, that's all very well, the speech of God. But, of course, God doesn't have literal lips and a literal tongue. He has to be using human words, and many people would say, ah, now that's when the problem comes in. When you talk about God's word coming to us through the medium, through the vehicle of words that human beings speak. Someone may say, all this stuff about God speaking to us, well, that's all very well. But as soon as you get failing, weak, sinful people as the vehicle, I'm afraid that's when all this theory just falls apart and becomes a bit unworkable. Well, let's see briefly what the Bible does when human words come into the picture. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their people, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. So although the people had said, we don't want to hear God speaking directly to us, that's too frightening. God says, okay, I will send you someone who is not strictly speaking me, the Lord God but he will speak to you the very words that I put in his mouth the words won't be any less mine, says God of course that is fulfilled ultimately in Christ but we see little fulfillments along the way in the, each of the Old Testament prophets one of the most remarkable statements of that is in Jeremiah chapter 1 Flick on there, Jeremiah 1 and verse 9. 1, 9. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Extraordinary appointing that God gives to Jeremiah. Only God has the power and the authority to uproot nations and tear them down to destroy them and overthrow them god says jeremiah has that authority why well verse 10 is true because the end of verse 9 is true i have put my words in your mouth says god let's move on uh, point d on the handout okay well, we've seen some prophecies of christ but let's come to christ himself christ's words and God's action and person. John chapter 14 and verse 9. John 14, verse 9. Philip has uh, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Of course, that theme running right through Christ's life and teaching, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And that applies not only to what they saw in Jesus, it also applied directly to what they heard Jesus say. So just uh, back a couple of pages, John chapter eight, and verse twenty-eight. John eight verse twenty-eight. John eight twenty-eight. So Jesus said, "When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own." but speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus speaks just what the Father has taught him. Just labouring this a little bit because it's such a crucial point. The, uh, the disciples clearly understood that, picked it up, it got into their own writing. So flick right on to uh, 1 John, John's first letter. And John shows that he has really, fully taken in this teaching from Jesus. First uh, verse of John's first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This, that which was from the beginning that we have heard, this we proclaim. The remarkable curtain, really, that's being torn back here is something like this. Jesus says, I teach only what the Father has taught me. And I've passed it on to the apostles so that they will also... Proclaim it. So, uh, within the life of God, the Holy Trinity, actually, although these words are deceptively simple, in a sense, we get here one of the clearest glimpses into the life of God, the Holy Trinity, that the whole of Scripture gives us. Of course, in a sense, the Trinity is mysterious to us and always will be in many ways. But Jesus says the Father has been talking to me the son telling me what i should speak when i come in flesh to the world and that is what i spoke says jesus fully god of course equally god with the father but in his willing and glad submission as the son to the father he comes to the earth not as it were making it up for himself but teaching what the Father has for all eternity taught him to say. And those words, in words of ordinary human language, in the language that Jesus spoke, are passed on to the apostles. So that John can say the utterly remarkable point there at the beginning of his letter, what we say to you, what we proclaim, is that which was from the beginning. Because the Son has taught it to us and he brought it to us from the Father. Now, let's um, pull this together a little bit. Uh, Let's plug human words back into the equation, point E. God's words, Christ's words, and human words. Uh, Back to John's Gospel, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 8. Jesus here praying shortly before his death, praying for the disciples. And he says, of praying to the Father, says of the disciples, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And then on to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. God doesn't trouble to explain to us how it can be that the words he has chosen for all eternity to speak to us come across truly, rightly, powerfully when they're spoken by Jesus of Nazareth in ordinary human language. He doesn't explain to us how it can be that when the disciples learn those words from Jesus and go out telling them to others, saying them in different languages, because, of course, um, the disciples' uh, time of Christ living in a very multilingual world. We we Brits are used to thinking, aren't we, that learning a foreign language is like, wow, you can speak a foreign language. Wow. He speaks English. But of course, for many people in many parts of the world, speaking two or three languages is completely normal. If you don't live on an island, you are going to meet people who speak different languages. And um, Jesus spoke uh, in Aramaic, but the disciples wrote their letters in Greek, so conversant in at least two languages. And even in Jesus' lifetime, he sends them out into the region the New Testament calls the Decapolis, Greek-speaking. Decapolis is a Greek name, Greek uh, label. So we can't be certain, but most likely, even in Jesus' lifetime, they were proclaiming his words to others in a language different from the one that Jesus normally spoke in. Human beings and theologians are often tied ourselves in enormous knots on surely the word of God will get lost as we move along that chain. But here in God's word, God says, no, no. I've spoken the words to the Son, who passed them on to the disciples, and when they learned them and when they faithfully proclaimed them, I, God, am meeting people in those words. We can't tie it all down philosophically, but God says, This is how it is. Presumably, if we want to go searching for a theological answer for this, it'll simply be because we are made in God's image. Now, back in Genesis chapter 1, what's the main thing God does in chapter 1? He speaks. And then he says, I have made human beings in my image, so that we can speak. All that language is is a fundamental part of the fact that we are made in the image of God. It seems to be wonderfully the case that God has made us in such a way and given us words and language such that the words we speak can faithfully and truly convey Christ, convey the word of the Father. Now, we spent a bit of time here in John's Gospel. Someone who was being pretty suspicious about this might say, yeah, yeah, I know this is a big theme in John, but um, maybe that was John's obsession, the other Gospels are different. Well, let me just show you in Matthew. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10. Is where Jesus sends the 12 out. Matthew 10, verse 14. He says to them, when they go out on this mission, verse 14, "'If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, "'shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. "'Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable "'for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment.' than for that town. So Jesus says, you're going out, you're going to knock on people's doors, meet them in the marketplace, you're going to try and engage them in conversation about me, says Jesus. If they don't want to hear you, if they reject you, they have made themselves liable for ultimate divine condemnation on the last day. That can only be because the words that those ordinary disciples go speaking are words that have come from God himself. God is encountering those people who hear about Jesus from the lips of these ordinary disciples. That becomes really clear in verse 40. In the same chapter, verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. See, that chain is made explicit there, isn't it? Words from the Father, given to the Son, passed on to the disciples. So when you faithfully tell someone the gospel and get it right, something of the most extraordinary spiritual magnitude is happening you may not always be aware of it the person you're talking to may not be aware of it but what is happening is that they are encountering God in action coming to meet them in the covenant promise implied in the gospel that you're telling them that's what's happening now you see the kind of the picture I'm trying to build F- the final point in this building of the picture, point F, someone would say, Well, it's all very well, I'm really up to this point, but you still haven't yet talked about the Bible. You've talked about the proclamation of the words of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. But the Bible is, well, I've got to, it's okay, people would say that many of theologians would have said, Yes, the gospel's the word of God. It's just, I'm not sure that every part of the Bible is the word of God. What, what do we do with that? Well, now, it's a massive topic. I can't uh, do every part of it in this uh, point. But let me just show you one thing. Go to that second reference there. Actually, we're back in John's Gospel again. John chapter 16. John 16. And verse 13. John 16, verse 13. Again, Jesus talking to the the, uh, disciples. For verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now there are different ways that promise from Jesus could be understood. And you'll make your interpretation of those verses depending on who you think the promise is made most directly to. And actually, in many ways, uh, for those who know anything of the history of the church and the the Reformation of the 16th century, you could say that um, the three main positions, if you like, that emerged in the Reformation are summed up as three different interpretations of these verses. If you think that um, the you here, those to whom Jesus promises uh, he will guide you into all the truth, if you think the you is the, um, the official institution of the church, as an institution, it's teaching authority, and for all time God is promising to lead them in all truth, if you think that, then you'll be a Roman Catholic. That's the Roman Catholic position. If you think that the um, the you to whom Jesus promises you'll lead you into all truth is um, certain particular spirit-filled individuals who are going to crop up at various times in the history of the church who are particularly tuned in to hearing the voice of God, then what you'll do is you'll look around for someone who you think is a particularly anointed prophet, let's say, uh, who says, uh, I'm speaking the word of God to you, and you'll rally around them. And plenty of Christians have taken that option. That's, um, those who are aware of these things, that would be the line taken by what was called the, the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptists in the 16th century. But if you take the third option, which has been the mainstream Protestant evangelical option, what you'll say is uh, that the you to whom Jesus makes this promise most directly is the original group of apostles who formed the community, who became the authors of the New Testament. And so if we want to be recipients of Jesus' promise that by the Spirit we'll be guided into all the truth, well, it is to the words that they wrote that we will give ourselves and submit ourselves. So this promise is made most directly here by Jesus to that group of people. We are, as it were, in a second stage recipients of this promise when we give ourselves to the words that Jesus gave them by the Spirit to write down. Just as a little kind of trailer into, uh, I think, the next talk. uh, For those who know anything about the doctrine of inspiration, precisely what we're talking about here is the doctrine of inspiration that's taught here by Jesus, but it happens not to use that particular word. Now, what does that mean? Last couple of minutes. a little summary there under point F. It means that. I should have rephrased this because this is expressed in kind of dull words, which is a bit rubbish. To pay proper attention to the words of the Bible is to encounter the spiritual reality to which God intends his word to point. That really is rubbish, isn't it? I need to rewrite that. Something like, it's this. What is paying proper attention to the words of, of the Bible? It is wanting to grapple with them and to understand them because we are convinced that when we do so and get to the heart of their meaning, we are encountering God coming to meet us in his words, as he is in himself. That is what his word is for. That is why he caused it to be written for us. Improper attention to the words of the Bible would be a casual reading of them. Oh, I think it means this. That's what God's saying. Another kind of improper attention to the words of God would be a profound study of the language and the syntax and the Greek, if you're that way inclined, and go away thinking, do you know, I think I really understand Colossians now. I I think I'd be quite good at teaching it to somebody else. That's a worthy aim in itself, but if that's all it is, that's an improper attention to the word of God because there's been no sense of At this point, as it were, I stand on holy ground. I am meeting the living God, coming to address me. So let me just pull all this together. Just a couple of final headlines, if you like. So here's how I'm thinking about the Bible. The Bible is God's active speech. Just a little sideline here. You'll you'll have to forgive me, because this is something of an obsessive interest of mine. uh, And most people find it extremely boring which is absolutely fine, I can live with that. Um, The philosophy of language, all human language, is people acting in relationships. If I make you a promise, I will finish in under two minutes from now, I haven't just stated a fact. I've entered into a relationship with you. You're now obligated to trust me. Unless you have good reasons for thinking that I'm just someone who waffles on forever. But we're in a relationship. I just said those words to you. They were a promise. I've established a relationship. All language does that. It's really curious when you think about it. But of course it does that because our language is made in the image of God. And when he speaks, he comes to establish a relationship with us. So... When we say the Bible is the Word of God, what are we saying? We are not just saying the Bible is information from God. It is that. But we're saying something much more profound. We are saying the Bible is God in action. The Bible is God in action. So I would always want to say if someone hears me describe my view of the Bible in two minutes and they start to get worried because they think I worship this book, I want to feel, well, that's okay. Of course, if I spend longer, like 40 minutes describing it to you, you'll know I don't worship this book, I worship Christ. But Christ and the Father have so identified who they are and who they want to come and be to us, so identified that with these words, that it must, on. I mean, I'll say this carefully, but it must on occasion look like I do worship these words. I don't, but I do worship the person who meets me in them. The Bible is God coming to us in in communicative action. So, conclusion. To say I trust Christ and to say I trust the words that Christ speaks in Scripture is to say the same thing. If you quibble with the latter, you are not doing the former. And you can't do the former without faithfully doing the latter. Second, Scripture is the word of God, but in a secondary sense to Jesus. So if someone just comes up to you and says, tell me about the word of God, tell them about Jesus. How am I going to get to know God? Tell them about Jesus. Oh, but of course, we don't see Jesus in the flesh now. And so he has identified himself with these words, and these are his words to you so you can come to know him. That, the Bible is the word of God. But of course, in that secondary sense, just in the same way, really, that the words I speak, you know, if I make a promise and you distrust it, well, you have distrusted me. My promise is a kind of extension of me out towards you trample on my words you've kind of trampled on me same with scripture and therefore just here's a little one line summary God is actively present to us in and through scripture there's an old jibe about evangelicals that um, an evangelical view of the bible is rather like someone who always knows what the time is because someone once wrote it down for him on a piece of paper well, no, because because of how God has chosen to save and to reveal, God is actively present to us in and through Scripture. I'm going to pray. Our Lord God, we... We pray that through these days you'll rightly stretch our minds. Each of us will have a different starting point, but stretch our understanding, we pray. But all the more, will you, as it were, stretch our hearts so that we love you more, rejoice all the more in who you are and what you have done. Amen.